Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mark Twain once likened biographies to what he called, quote, the clothes and buttons of the man. He said, quote, the biography of the man himself cannot be written. The quote is a favorite of Patricia Bosworth, a 1950s Broadway star turned biographer who for 40 years has been proving Twain's words wrong. In her books, Bosworth has captured the essence of elusive artists like Montgomery Clift, Marlon Brando, and New York underworld photographer Diane Arbus. These men and women were revered but broken, larger-than-life characters doomed to self-destruct. It's a type Patricia Bosworth knows firsthand. Her own father, Bartley Crum, was a famous left-wing lawyer who, after an illustrious career that included defending members of the Hollywood Ten, ended his own life. It's her father's suicide and that of her brother years earlier that gave Bosworth a thirst to understand tormented souls. Her new book, The Men in My Life, turns that examination inward, exploring how those deaths shaped her and were linked to the fear and repression of that era. The third man in her life during that period was her abusive first husband, a frustrated artist she eloped with at age 19. Harper Collins did not want me to name him since he tried to kill me, you know. They felt that he might object. And he was a painter. Wanted to be a painter, but he never painted anything right, except yeah. one painting. Which but was... he seemed to be blaming everyone around him that he couldn't get any painting done. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I make jokes about it, but it actually was a horrible situation. Right. I, I ran How away. old were you? I was 19. Uh, my husband was, was literally beating me up in a cab, and I kept telling him to stop. And finally I said to the cab driver, please help me. And the guy just said... He's the boss, lady. And he went right on allowing my husband to beat at me. So I jumped out of the cab and ran through the traffic and got on a bus and went up to see my therapist in New Hampshire because she had said, if I really get into trouble, call me. I will be there for you. So I get there. (laughs) She's your New York therapist. She's my New York therapist. And she said, if you ever need me, call me. And now she's up in Vermont. She's in Vermont. That's right. And how do you get to Vermont? On a bus because she had said, if I really get into trouble, Call me. I will be there for you. So I get there. I went to the Port Authority bus terminal, got on a bus, got up to Vermont. And gave her no advance notice. No, I didn't. I, I showed up. Ding her, dong. Ding dong. Open the door. And there she is in a kimono. And I see sort of a man in the background. And I say, I'm, I, I need yeah. help. I, She's doing she another said, kind of therapy right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, I, please, I need help. My husband's beating me up. She said, this is my vacation. We will talk when I return to New York in September. And she closed the door in my face. And I was totally, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where where to go. She literally shut the door in my face. I'm in a dusty, you know, little town, wandering down the street. East nowhere, Vermont. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I see this inn up ahead. And there are all these cars and, and they're, I people. think, people. Yeah. And, and there are filmmakers and cameras being pulled in and out of places. And, and I go inside. And I'm crying, and this middle-aged man comes over to me, and he said, what's the matter? And I said, my husband left me. I didn't even know what to say. He said, I'm going to take care of you. He said, I am doing a movie on Robert Frost this afternoon, a documentary, and you're going to come out with me and talk to Mr. Frost, and it's going to make you feel better. And I spent the entire afternoon with Robert Frost 
talking poetry, and this actually happened. Bella Kornitzer, who is a well-known documentarian, who'd done movies on Truman and Eisenhower, and he was doing this documentary on Frost. He took, he'd never seen me before in my his life. He was kind. No, and... He was wonderful. And, and it really did, it really sort of was a very important experience in my life because at that point I was so depressed and so I didn't didn't know what, what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. And here was this man who literally saved my life that day and showed me that there was beauty and wonder and fabulousness in life, which of course I knew, but I'd forgotten. You know, it was it was really an incredible experience. And at that point in your life, you weren't writing then, were you? I mean, I was keeping a journal. I kept a journal since uh, I was a teenager. But you were modeling. I was modeling and acting. And I started to act. Yes, I did. Some and you acting. did that. And, and, and your career as a writer doesn't really take off, so to speak, until when? Well, I, I was a I was an actress on Broadway and off and yeah, movies for, a while. for for ten years right. for ten years. Uh, but I always wanted to write. I had these dual ambitions of wanting to be both an actress and a writer like Colette. But you walked away from acting. Why? Because I really enjoyed writing more. Right. Uh, and also, I hated the rejections, Alec. Yeah. And I, I was not moving as fast as I wanted to. I didn't get the parts I wanted. Uh, I... Uh, but I really, I really enjoyed writing more. And you're more self-reliant when you're writing. Yes. Being in rooms where you're That's counting right. on everybody I didn't else have to do to, their job. I didn't job. have to wait for people to, to agree and you know, tell me what that I was right. or get, get it the, right. Get the part. What are the first things you start to write and submit? Whether well, magazine pieces or books or what have you? They were they were they were magazine pieces actually. What happened was I I took a writing course at Columbia, and uh, I started writing little pieces, sort of memory pieces. I actually started writing a memoir about my father and and my brother when I was backstage in Mary Mary. Remember, I was doing that too. I was in a, in a Broadway show. I was understudying a double understudy, Barbara Bel Geddes and Betsy von Furstenberg, and I went on for both parts. Well, you can imagine it, it was it was rough because. Of course, I wanted to play both parts. Yeah. Uh, but but when I wasn't going on for these two actresses, I was in my dressing room starting to write. And I did start to write this story of my family, but I wrote it as a novel and, of course, it was terrible. But then I was writing little pieces. I started talking to my actor friends. I thought, God, they're sort of interesting. And I began interviewing Sandy Dennis and Liz Ashley and Marion Seldes, all the actors I knew on Broadway at the time. And they created a sensation because they were very honest, frank interviews because nobody thought I'd get my stuff published. My friends babbled to me without realizing that I was taking everything right. down. And actually, Sandy and Liz both tried to sue me. No. They, they, they stopped being my friends. Uh, it was horrible. I got sick to my stomach. You're I like was... Truman Capote here. It's like, <laughs> it's like answered prayers. No, but I really felt that I'd betrayed them. And if I remember them correctly, they're, they're two rather delicate women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the first book you attempt? Oh, I didn't start writing a book for 10 years. I had a long apprenticeship at various magazines, including a place called Magazine Management, a schlock house, right. where Mary Apuzzo was writing The Godfather. No. Yeah. He was writing The Godfather while he was on staff at a magazine? Yes, he was. He, he what kind of pieces did he write? He wrote sex action uh, pieces. and uh, Sex action? Well, that's what they were called, well, sex what? action. <laughs> <laughs> I want you and I to, you and I are going to start an online site. We are? We're going to call it sex action. <laughs> we're going to, I never dreamed it would be you. Patty Bosworth, you and I are going to do sex action. And I can't even tell you how much money we're going to make. I, would like I don't even to. know what it is. It doesn't even matter. Sex slash action. Yeah, I, I figured. War, we might cut the slash, war, but go ahead. and then when they come home, they have a lot of sex. They do. 
Well, but that's Mario, all they have on their mind. Huh? Yes. Yeah. But Mario wrote incredible stories. He did. He ground them out, and on the side, he was writing this book called The Godfather, and people kept saying, when are you going to finish? And it took him nine years. And if you can believe it, one of the staff people said to him, Mario, The Godfather is not a good title. Right. Yeah, that's terrible. Come on, sure. Yeah. yeah. But but I became one of his, like, protégés in a way. He, really? What was no, he well, like? Oh, he was just a wonderful man. He really knew how to write. He knew how to write narrative, characters. He was terrific. He was a wonderful But the thing that bothered him was he was not considered a serious writer after he had so much success with The Godfather. He wanted to be a Philip Roth, a Hemingway. He wanted people to think of him in these terms. But he wanted to be considered, he wanted to be reviewed in New York Review of Books. He and wanted, he wasn't? No. Was he married, had a family? Yes, oh yes. Very much a family man. While he was writing sex action, he was a family man. Yes, he was. He was yeah. also a gambler. That was the other reason that he stayed there so long, at this place called Magazine money. Management, which <laughs> also produced Marvel Comics. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Stan Lee of Marvel Comics. Yeah. And guess who came to visit us one day at the office? Fellini. What? Fellini came to see Stan Lee yeah. because he'd created, you know, whoever, Marvel Spider-Man yeah. and God knows who. And he, Fellini came to the office in the black cape and the hat. And Mario was out in the lobby, and he saw this guy speaking in Italian <laughs> to the receptionist. She didn't know who he Fellini, I is Fellini. <laughs> so he said, my God, you are Fellini. And they spoke in Italian. He brought Fellini into the bullpen. We were all, you know, sitting there. Yes. And he introduced us, and Fellini told us in Italian, Mario translating, I, too, began in schlock. I, too. I was in to the do... magazine management of Rome. I, too, wrote sex action stories. I wrote stories. sex action. <laughs> no, but he used to <laughs> be a... Sexo azione. But, but Fellini was a cartoonist, you know. I didn't know oh, that. Oh, yeah. And, that, and so he was talking to us about how you, too, can be great, you know, artists, but you do begin sometimes in a different way. You, you draw cartoons or you write sex action, and then you, you go beyond that. But he was, like, very inspiring to us. No, were the influences of your family, your brother, your father, your childhood, were they... Uh, revealing themselves in the work you did then, or did that all pile up in, later into the oh, books? Oh, no, it didn't, it didn't reveal itself at all. In fact, nobody knew anything about my—I my, never talked about myself. You stuffed I, that down. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I just totally uh, swallowed it and, and, and hid it, and I didn't talk about anything that had happened to me ever. When I wrote this, these last two books, nobody had known anything about my father or, or my, the suicide of my, my brother or my father. Mm -hmm. um, I Your just, brother died when you were how old? I was 20. You were in college? Yes. You were going where again? Sarah Lawrence, yeah. <laughs> do so, you care to talk about that, or would you prefer not no, to? No, I can talk about book. it, like, whatever you well, want. What do you think was going on with your brother? Well, it's a long story. I, right. I, he had gone to Deerfield Academy, very happy to be there. He was a brilliant kid, uh, the closest person to me in my life, really. Uh, I really looked up to him, and we were just very close. We were very close as twins, really, I'd say. Uh, but anyway, he was at Deerfield, and he he really fell in love with another boy, Uh and in those days, that kind of thing didn't happen. It was inconvenient. Yeah, to put it mildly. He was discovered with his arms around this boy in a gym, in the gym, in the Deerfield gym, by somebody. And uh, they realized they'd been caught hugging each other, embracing perhaps, because I never really found out exactly what was going on. But the following day, my brother's friend was found hanging from a tree, and my brother was expelled from school. And he was blamed for it, really. Mm. Uh, 
and mm. he never, ever recovered from it. He went into a deep depression. He was sent to many analysts. Nobody ever talked. He stopped going to school? No, he continued to go to school. He went to different schools after that. But, but uh, How soon after that boy died did your brother die? Uh, three years. My a brother shot himself on the head when he was 18. Uh, he was 15 when, when his friend hung himself. And by the way, Deerfield refused to ever talk about the suicide, said it never had happened. I tried to research it. I went up there, and they said my brother had never gone to Deerfield. So I pulled out the yearbook, which had my brother's name in it. I said he did go to school. This boy, this other boy did kill himself. They never, ever would would uh, admit that there had been a suicide at Deerfield. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, so... There's a period of uh, this writing, McCall's and Harper's Bazaar and so forth, and then your first book is? Montgomery Cliff. You homed in on him first. Why? Well, well, my husband, uh, my second husband, Mel Arigi, who was my great, one of my great loves uh, of my life, uh, he, and, and is fortunately not here now. Anyway, M uh, Mel said, write about Montgomery Cliff because you knew him. You remember him. Right. You saw him when you were a little girl, blah, blah, blah. Start with what you know. And, and, and so I did. Uh, and I met him when I was 15 because my father was his lawyer. Your I, father was his lawyer for what? When when Monty, this was a long, long time ago, like in 48 when Mon Montgomery Cliff was just starting and becoming a star, my father advised him uh, on, 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 on his politics, oddly enough. Monty was very involved politically, involved in, in, in that he had a conscience and he knew what was going on and the blacklist was about to start. And my father had come off working for Truman and was known politically as a you know, radical lawyer. Anyway, Monty uh, uh, came to him and talked to him and that's when I first saw him and fell, sort of got a crush on him. Uh, I didn't know anything about his problems at that time. It was only later. You didn't know anything about his no, problems? No, I didn't. But... but all the other people that I gravitated to, like Jane Fonda, whose mother had committed suicide. And so we became like suicide survivors together at the studio. And uh, Arbus, who did commit suicide, Deanne Arbus, the photographer. And then Brando, who was also very committed. committed suicide in slow motion. In a way, yeah, 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 by eating too much. Is it safe to say that there's a link between your childhood your dad had a very kind of uh, uh, tough period in his career with the uh, House on American Activities Committee defending people there. Your brother and the kinds of people you wrote about in your books, do you kind of gravitate toward complicated, troubled people? Absolutely, always. And I, I, I didn't know that. I mean, when I began, I just, you know, the first book I wrote was about Montgomery Clift. Your, your, your book about Clift was entitled? Montgomery Clift, Montgomery Clift. Biography. And there was another book, Monty. Yes. That someone else wrote yes. ab about him. Yes. Did they both come out at the, around the same time? No, they didn't. My, mine came out later. Who I, wrote the other book? Bob LaGuardia. Right. What happened was I had been contracted to do a biography of Montgomery Clift, and I began got this incredible research with his, from his, about his family. And then my mother got very sick, and I had to stop writing it to take care of her. And the publisher sued me and got Bob LaGuardia to write a quickie book called Monty. Right. He used my even the, the picture, my cover picture. He also sued me for $10,000 because he said he'd promoted me in my book. Anyway, and Monty so, came out when? Monty came out about almost a year and a half before my, my book came out. Right. But then my book was considered the, the, sure. the good book. Yeah, your book came out 
And I was living in Washington at the time, going to school, and I read the Washington Post review mm. of your book. Right. A big piece of the article was an interview with his brother who lived oh, in the, the D.C. suburbs, I guess in Maryland or Virginia, maybe yes. Maryland. Yes, and Eleanor Clift was his wife. There, there you go. And the thing that was so amazing was that Brooks gave me everything. He decided he would trust me because he had all of his brother's stuff, including a phone book, and my name was in the phone book, and my father's name was. So he knew that I'd known him, and he liked that. He liked that idea. I found him in the, in the phone book, and I called him up because I was just so intrigued by Clift and the kind of uh, preternatural beauty, and he was so beautiful. Oh, he was gorgeous. Yeah, he was incredible. But, but, when, but when, you did, when you did his story, you had met him. I had met him when I was 15 years old. And he died what year? In 1965, I believe, but I met him in 19... I hate, hate to say it. I, mean, I think I met him in 48 or 49. Right. It was when he did The Search and Red River, uh, and then he did Place in the Sun in 1950, I guess it was. Mm. But I met him literally at the height of his fame, and he was absolutely ravishingly beautiful. What was it that, that aided him? What was it that aided him? Yeah, oh, I think, I think the fact that he was homosexual and he was very conflicted about his sexuality. He was supposed to pretend to be straight. No, no was, that, was that the conflict that he had to pretend in public or was he conflicted about being gay? He Apparently, according to his analyst, he was conflicted about being gay. He, you know, he did have these relationships with women. Apparently, he did go to bed with one woman, Judy Balaban. Do you remember Judy? No. Do you know Judy? Barney Balaban's daughter uh, no. who was the head of Paramount. Women were crazy about him. Women, yeah. women wanted to go to bed with him. He was androgynous. He was like Brando in a way. They were both, you know, so complicated sexually, so so sensual, and so, oh boy. I mean, he, he was so gorgeous. Number one, Clift but it was even the androgyny. So. Yeah. Yes, it was the androgyny. And Dean. He did go both ways, as did Brando. They were both bisexual to begin with, but Cliff then ultimately turned totally gay and had many male lovers. You hear these stories. Well, the one I heard was that Brando said to Edward Dimitrik, didn't Dimitrik direct that yes, film, The did. Young Lions? And Brando said to Dimitrik that he was going to get shot in the end, his big death scene, and roll down the side of this hill. That's right. And he was going to land, and he wanted to land in a land. Christ-like That's tableau, right. and he wanted the last minute for a b bush to fall and a crown of thorns kind of be formed oh, over that the top I didn't of his hear. head. That's and, never heard and of. Apparently Cliff said, <laughs> like, apparently Cliff turned to Dimitrik and said, if he does that I'm going home. <laughs> I think that may be a true story. Could be. <laughs> but 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 Clift, I can't help but speak about this in the most basic, uh, even eroticized fandom. You know what I mean? Which is everybody knows that it, him and Elizabeth Taylor in Place in the Sun. I mean, there's just no more beautiful couple in the history. Oh. Not, not not even uh, Cary Grant and well, you know Burton. they liked they like to stand in front of the mirror together to look at their reflections. They knew they were gorgeous. Coming up, Patricia Bosworth relives the day she sent a fax to Marlon Brando's dog and got a response. Patricia Bosworth has a thousand stories from her days amongst the greats of stage and screen, but if anyone can give her a run for her money, it's the late Robert Osborne host of Turner Classic Movies, and once a working actor himself. In 1958, his luck and charm got him a screen test with Lucille Ball. So when it was over, Lucy didn't really say anything. She just thanked me for coming by, and I thought, well, she wasn't that impressed, but at least I got to spend some time with Lucille Ball. Like a week later, 
a message comes on my voice. Uh, You're answering service. Answering service. <laughs> Hello, La Brea 9, <laughs> 2000. I called the number, and the secretary said, well, Lucille Ball wants you to come to dinner on Friday night. So I go to Lucy's house that Friday night. There's Janet Gaynor. There's Joseph Cotton. Oh. There's Kay Thompson. Oh. And I'm thinking, did you ever believe that you would ever be? And then I thought, no, wait a minute. I always knew I was going to be here. Listen to my entire interview with Robert Osborne at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Patricia Bosworth had a successful career as an actress in the 1950s, rubbing elbows with the likes of Audrey Hepburn and Marilyn Monroe. But it was the stories behind the scenes that interested her most. After releasing her first book in 1978, she's gone on to write six more, one of which, on Diane Arbus, was turned into a movie. New York Magazine called the book a spellbinding portrait. My research on Arbus is all original. It, it was it was amazing. It took me seven years almost to, to write the book, and I, I didn't know how incredible it was going to be. I really didn't. Is that what happens? Oh, you're, yeah. you're doing the research and going, ooh, ah, it's like solving a mystery. Of letters. It's, it's like, like solving a mystery. You're always looking for clues. Or prosecuting a crime. Well, not really, but... Well, maybe only in terms of a lot of research, very research-heavy. I interviewed dozens and dozens of people from every part of her life, and, of course, I created the worlds that she inhabited, the, the world of fashion, the world, the dark world, and I wanted to do that. It, oddly enough, every single one of the people I've written about I've known personally, and in a way it makes it, it, makes it for me more, I don't know, immediate, and I can, I, since I know them, I can see them, and I, I know a little bit about them, and it's mainly I'm so curious. I'm very nosy. That's the way most biographers are. And you thought that her story would make something that was worth, worthy of your nosiness. I didn't know. I had, I'd modeled for her. When I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager, you know, the, uh, and and I needed money, and I became a model, and I modeled for her, and she hired me because I didn't really look like a model. I was, you know, she was then in fashion, and she was a fashion photographer with her husband, and uh, she was intrigued by me because I'd gotten married when I was seventeen, eloped. She had too, and I hadn't realized that. So this kind of interested her, intrigued her, and I, I found her probably one of the strangest kind of most eerie personalities I'd ever How come so? across. Well, she spoke in a very tiny voice. She wore the same dress every single day. Like and, a uniform. Like a uniform. Was always barefoot. She wore the same dress because she said, I don't want to think about what I wear. And literally the thing was falling apart. It was ragged and dirty. But she was very, very smart. And she asked me all sorts of interesting questions. Where did she live? She lived in the studio with her with her husband and, and child. Doom. In New York? Yeah. It was an old artist loft studio on East 72nd Street off 2nd Avenue. Wow. And they had a tree in the live in, in part of the studio. But I, I never forgot her because she was so she was she actually took an interest in me. I was I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was very unhappy. I remember at one point a photographer molested me, a male photographer, before one of my sessions with, with uh, in a, was a catalog house, I guess I was working for. And I remember telling her about this in tears and saying, oh, now I'll never be able to work with this man again. She said, well, of course you won't. You shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, my God, what are you you're doing? You're getting it all wrong. Yeah, you're yeah, getting it all wrong. He won't and have me back. Exactly. 
And she said, remember who you are. You know, you can't, you don't, shouldn't tolerate this kind of behavior. Nobody had ever talked to me like this. Of course, in those days, women were very passive, very Do you feel you were? Uh, By and large. Why did Arbus kill herself? Well, there were many reasons for that. Uh, You know, she was deeply depressed. Her her lover was uh, not faithful to her. That was one thing that upset her. But she also was suffering from deep depression and didn't, could not take any kind of antidepressants. Why? They uh, made they made her feel sick. That's what her mother told me. She was never on any any drugs. Where was she from, Arbus originally? She was right from New York City. Uh, her her family were a mercantile family. They owned Russick's Department Store, a furrier's. She was very rich. Came from a very rich family. I was raised by nannies and and chauffeurs. R u s s i c k apostrophe s. Yes. Yeah. And the Russick's building is still on Fifth Avenue. I remember seeing that. Her mother was always depressed. The, the whole entire family was was depressed. I mean, her her, mother, her brother was Howard Nemeroff, the poet, uh-huh. and he was the one who was my source, my major source. And he said we were always depressed. Uh, and they had all but, the money in the world. But, Money was Doesn't not. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't matter. I mean, she she fought her depression by uh, by photographing by going into this other world or this other Escaping. reality, this uh-huh. dark reality. She always wanted to explore because she felt she was in a in a reality she didn't like. This reality of the department store and the money and the and the thinking of, of possessions all the time. Right. She was uh, she wanted to to create. Who was her lover that was betraying her? Marvin Israel, who was Richard Avedon's right hand in in his work. And he was he was also a brilliant painter and photographer. He, he was an assistant to Avedon? No. He designed his shows. And he was also art, art director of Harper's Bazaar. He was oh, a nice. graphics designer and right. painter. Right. A very strange man who, who only painted dogs chewing at each other. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we're going to leave that out of sex action. Um, your book about Clift comes out in 78. And your book on Arbus comes out in 84, and then you take a very long time until you write your next book. You don't do the book about Brando until 17 years later, 2001. That, well, that's right. In the mean, meantime, I did your memoir, the memoir. Anything Your Little Heart Desires in, in 97. Yes. How does that gestate? Well, as I say, I, it gestated for like 40 years. In yeah. other words, I started writing it. In my dressing room at the Helen Hayes Theater when I was in Mary Mary, I started writing the story of my father, of his the beginnings of his political career, my brother's suicide. I actually started it as a novel. I fictionalized it, which was ridiculous, and then I stopped. I didn't actually write it as a real book. as I didn't get a contract for it for 30, some 30-odd years, but I was thinking about it all the time. Mm. This story of my father, story of my brother, my mother, me, uh, took about 30, 40 years. Did you leave a lot of things out? No, I didn't, because by the time I wrote it, everybody was dead, you know, and I was felt free enough to, for example, my mother and and her lovers, this lover that she had who was our gardener, which is an incredible story in the book. I never could have told that when she was alive, and I wouldn't have. But but, uh, no, I I really did. I think I told almost everything. Not everything, Alex. Do you know, I I almost would rather write a novel because I can do whatever I want to do and say whatever I want to say and just make up the people. And if they overlap with real people, who gives a shit? Have you ever wanted to do the same thing? Yes, I have. I haven't. I haven't, though. But but, and I still feel I may may yet write another memoir. But uh, yes, of course I have. Uh, I just haven't yet. Now, we, obviously, when you did the first memoir, 
anything your little heart desires in American Family Story, it stops when the cutoff is? It stops after after my father committed suicide. What year was that? 1959. Actually, I had just done this movie called The Nun Story with Audrey Hepburn. It was my biggest <laughs> credit. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was, I was doing quite well. But uh, after my father committed suicide, I seemed to lose all ambitious ambition and I, I kind of became numbed all over again because my brother had already committed suicide. So this for me was a very traumatic, huge change in my life. His suicide, I had also wanted to prove myself to him, you know, be successful. He was gone. There were all these things that, that, that made me pull back and for a while, I just didn't want to do anything. I did. I worked, but I, I didn't have an ambition. I want to talk quickly about Brando. Um, my feelings about Brando have altered quite a bit over the last 10 years. When, when you put all the pieces together psychologically, intelligence, sexuality, and sensitivity, most stars have two. Almost none have all three. And Brando, of course, had all three, but very quickly he becomes, uh, you know, this extended middle finger, this extended fuck you to the business. It's exhausting. What do you think that was about? When did that start for him? Was it fuck you even with Streetcar with Kazan in 47? No. No, it was his mother, the death of his mother, I think. Really? And I'll, I'll go back, I'll backtrack, okay? Right. His mother was an alcoholic. Right. And Brando spent his childhood and adolescence taking care of her, getting her out of bars, carrying her home, even beating his father up when his father was beating her up. And, of course, you know, she was an actress, mm -hmm. ran that little playhouse mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, where was it, Nebraska. Right. For example, when he did Julius Caesar, he went home and, and he recited Shakespeare in, in the cornfields with her listening, that kind of thing. Right. But what happened was she decided to go into AA, and this meant that Brando no longer could take care of her. She was taking care of herself. He almost had a nervous breakdown. Mm. And he even, Stella Adler even talked to him about it. Did, so he, Harold, did he tell you about it? Uh, uh, Harold Clerman talked to me about this, this whole aspect of... Did you of, speak to Brando much for the book? No, I didn't speak to him at all. I only, I only met him once at the actor's studio. I called him on the phone. He wanted to talk to me originally because he wanted to talk about Kazan. And he actually wrote me a letter that he would talk to me. But then he decided not to. And I really became so frustrated, I kept calling him and calling. And finally somebody said, why don't you call his dog? <laughs> Alec, I did. Yeah. Listen to this. I faxed, dear Fido, I want to speak to your master. Within seconds, the fax came back saying, my master does not want to talk to you and signed with two paw prints. This was Brando answering me. Just fucking with people. Incessantly. I was going to do, because I had done Streetcar oh, I know for TV, which That's was a right. huge mistake. It was the, one of the biggest mistakes of my career and the biggest waste of time of my career. And we all just did it for a paycheck. And then I get an offer from uh, CBS was doing that stuff back then. They said, would you do uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with my ex-wife, with Kim would play uh, uh, um, Maggie. Uh, and we were all a little long in the tooth for these parts, by the way. But then they said, uh, would we do? And would Brando would be Big Daddy. And I've got to call Brando. And, you know, you call the number and leave the message. Oh, and the woman yeah. calls you back. And, and they're very prompt and very formal. And she said, what time, what number? He will call you. And sure enough, I'm sitting in my house and my phone rings. And, of course, I trip over myself. I must break my I neck know. tripping over a stool in the kitchen to get to the phone. Maybe he's going to let it ring three times and hang up. You know, he's, maybe he's just sick of this. And I pick up the phone and she says, here he is. And he gets on the phone. And he said, why don't you come by Thursday? 
And I was like, oh, my God. And I go to his house. And I had lunch with him for four hours. Come on. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? And I had lunch with him for four hours. And you could tell he was sad. He was sad. What was the thing that you learned about him that was the, among the thousands of things, I'm sure? Was Brando's bisexuality, that's, that's not that widely known, though. Oh, yes. It well, is. In, in, with, among his friends, yes. Right. He was totally free about it. He didn't give a damn. Right. He didn't care at all. Right. Any he, port in a storm for Brando. Absol- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. He was wild. And, and was, was Wally Cox's dear friend or was he his boyfriend? That I don't know. We I do know, know that Wally Cox absolutely adored him. And Brando they lived revered together. Wally Cox. Yeah. And when Wally Cox died, Brando went, went to the funeral, but he wouldn't go to the funeral. He climbed up a tree and looked down oh. at the ceremony and then fought to get the ashes. Oh, boy. I, th- I thought that they roomed together they in did. Carnegie. They did in the 50s. And yeah. Shelley Winters tells this funny story about being Brando's date one night. And Wally Cox was there, and they had they had something like roasted grapefruit for dinner. Oh, my God. That's it. Right. Yeah, that's it. And, that was Brando's idea of cooking. <laughs> right. Just craziness. Craziness. On, on, on 57th You know, he Street. used to climb out windows. He used to cl- go into people's apartments. He would like be like a burglar and, and, and climb into windows and poke his head in and say hello and then leave. And it was well, crazy. Be, now, uh, Jane Fonda is someone who has always just intrigued me to no oh, end because she's had these multiple stages of her career. Her, uh, you know, tabloidy marriages and Tom Hayden, who I worshipped. I love Tom. But for me, what will never die is looking back at her as one of the great, not just beauties and movie stars, but film actresses. I mean, she's such a great actress. She is. No, she she's is truly. a great. Clute, is, I'll never forget. Clute, it's heartbreaking to me. Absolutely. That this woman is still not grinding out as many movies as possible. Even her, uh, forget about age, because she's so mesmerizingly oh, she's talented. She's incredible. I know. What was the experience like writing about her? Where, Did she have a comparable loss that the Brando had? She had two was? losses. Her mother slitting her throat when Jane was 12 years old, and and her father, who never showed his love for her. Henry Fonda never said, I love you. He was always cold to her. Uh, Did she ever understand why? Did she venture against no, us? To no, never she, he, was a, he was a very strange man. I think he actually was obsessed with her, myself. Right. But what happened was Jane and I had met at the actor's studio, and she decided she wanted a woman to write her biography. She'd had nine biographies written by men, and they'd all been threatened by her. She wanted a woman to write about her life. Did she cooperate with you? Totally. Oh, so it's an authorized biography. She didn't want to call it authorized because she didn't read it. She refused to read it. She said, oh, I'm only looking at the pictures. But she heard from other people it was okay. It was very difficult for me to do that. I mean, it was difficult because I knew her. She trusted me totally. And there were a lot of things in her life that she'd done that were not that great, you know? So how do I handle that? I mean, she stole her routines for the workout from her trainer. And should I tell this, you know? So I called Gilda, who was her trainer, and Gilda said, yeah, she did steal them. And so did, you, it, did you ask Fonda about yes, that? Yes, I did. What did she say? She said, oh, well, you know, I she, she hedged and, and, and right. hemmed and hawed. I didn't want it to be a puff piece because right. she had given me so much. It was difficult, and I, there were certain things I did leave out. Uh, what about Turner? Were, she, wa- 
she decided she wanted to be taken care of, even right. though Ted Turner himself said, I couldn't take care of her. She wouldn't even let me pay for her plane tickets, he said. Yeah. Uh, but I think also they were they're very much alike in a way. I mean, they're both totally self-involved, very smart. Uh, they love they love the fame. They love the power that comes yeah. with that. Um, so I think for a while it worked, except he was always unfaithful to her. Oh. Always. Yeah. And, and and she couldn't take that. She, he was unfaithful like the second week, third week they were married. He, she found out he was screwing somebody. Your uh, latest book uh, entitled The Men in My Life, A Memoir of Love and Art in 1950s Manhattan is very sad <laughs> and funny, but really, really sad. But, but the thing is, when you write a book, what are you supposed to write? Exactly. You, you, write you, about cannot, your feelings. you cannot be indifferent to your own <laughs> history, you know. <laughs> you can't. And and I was very involved. And yes, I guess I did get sad at times. Well, what I love about when I read Clift is you as you as you read it and you think, is anybody happy in this business? <laughs> is anybody ultimately happy? You I don't know. I, mean? know. I don't know. I I think they are. Well, you know, was Paul Newman happy? No, maybe he wasn't. I think Paul. I think but Newman Paul... was very happy toward the end. Mm-hmm. I think Newman for Newman, the great uh, you know horrible thing I want to assume is when his son Scott killed himself. Oh. It changed him, too, oh, totally. Oh, I think it was completely changed yeah, him. changed him totally. You know, I think that that really affected him. Your last book, your memoir that's out now, there really is a, a kind of an energy of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, of forgiveness. Is that is that right to say that? You're not mean to these people in this book. Oh, no, of course not. How can even I be mean? the ones that hurt you. Well, you really put the gloves on with the ex-husband of yours. I mean, well, you're, that, that's you're not true. mean to him. No, I know I'm not. I don't. I don't. I was. I was just. I don't know. I just. I wanted. I wanted to tell these stories. Uh, it's really. You know, the book really is is about my brother. It's it's a tribute to my brother. What's the next memoir for you? Um, I don't know yet. Do I think I would like to write about. Actually, I'd like to write about the next ten years, meaning the six, the sixties into seventies, where I get into feminism and I work in pornography, which I did for a while with Bob Guccione. And what I, did you do in pornography? I, I, I edited a female porn magazine called Viva. For I two remember years. Viva. Yeah, I remember I edited Viva. it for two years until he fired me. Uh, what was he like, Guccione? He was a complicated man. I right. mean, he, you know, he wanted to be a painter, another one. Right. Uh, he felt he was doing good. He was an accidental pornographer, wasn't he? He was. Right. He was. He was very smart. <laughs> and he actually published some wonderful ma- articles in Penthouse oh, about the Vietnam War. Oh yep, God! I remember. Did. I remember reading he about did. Barry Seal that's and right. the whole Mena, Arkansas that, conspiracy. That's and that, right. And, and, no, and that he did ma- a lot of political great stuff. Great writing in that in that magazine. A lot of and 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 Viva had great writing in it too. It did. Well, I think that when you're done with that uh, memoir, or maybe while you're yes. writing that memoir, <laughs> I want you to remember to allow time for you and I for sex action. It's a winner. Okay. I love it. Okay. Launch date to be determined. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing comes from WNYC Studios.